then shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own spirit, but gave him up for us, all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much, um, Lord, for your unending love, God. Um, I pray that our hearts will be open to hear what you have to say to us, Lord God. I pray um, that you speak through Kevin um, as he brings the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. So for those of you guys that are sh struggling like I am this morning, because it's actually 9.55, but our government has told us, no, it's 10.55, um, uh, I apologize. We have coffee on the back table. Uh, uh, for those of you guys that are new, my name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Appreciate you guys being here this morning uh, to worship with us. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be finishing up there uh, this morning. But as you guys are turning over there, I just want to give you guys kind of a, a quick uh, uh, announcement on something that's going on next week. So uh, next Sunday after church, um, we are going to be celebrating... Um, our fifth birthday as a church. So, yes. Yeah, can we give God a hand for that? Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Um, we made it. The kid, we're five years old, so we made it, right? We're getting ready to go into kindergarten now, I guess. Um, so, anyway, plan to stick around after service next week. Um, we'll have uh, stuff for the kids to do, for those of you guys with kids. Um, for those of you guys that are college students and think you're kids, you can participate in some of the things that are for the kids and some of them you can't, sorry. Um, there's liability issues. I don't think you can get in the bounce house, I'm sorry. Um, but we'll have those things. We'll be uh, doing food and things like that too. Um, if you want to bring something, if you want to bring a drink or a dessert or a bag of chips, um, we would love for you to do that so that there's enough food for everybody and then we'll provide kind of the main course um, for everybody uh, next week and just... You know, spend some time just celebrating and looking forward to all that God's going to hopefully do in the future here through um, Aletheia Church. So that's next week. Um, so um, we're finishing up Romans 8 this morning. Um, and, and I need to make sure that I set the stage for everything that we're going to talk about this morning. Because if, if we just read those verses the way that Myra did and I don't give any context for you guys, it kind of is just confusing. Like, wait, why are we, why are there these, these random questions here at the end of this chapter uh, without any context of what's going on? So, um, 
let, let me try to make some sense of like where we've been and where, we're, where, where Paul has been taking uh, the church at Rome in his letter up until this point. So if, if, you, look, if you go back to Romans 7 and Romans chapter 6, uh, basically Paul has been trying to answer this question uh, for, for the Christians in Rome. How, how do we, if we're a professing follower of Jesus, how do we view our sin? How do, how, do we, how do we deal with sin now? And let's just be honest, that is a universal question that you will ask for the rest of your life if you're a professing follower of Jesus. Like, how, what, like, what, what about sin? Do I still sin? Should I still be sinning? How do I look my, at my sin? How do I view my sin? And it really can cause people to, to get to some really strange beliefs. You know, if you, if you are a, a follower of Christ and you still see your own sin, but you know you're forgiven for your sin, you can start trying to excuse it. You can, you can start doing all these different things. And so what Paul ends up saying over the course of Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7 is that because of the finished work of Jesus, you and I, if we are a follower of Christ, if we are in him, can be free both from the consequences of our sin, but also the power of that sin. And in that freedom, not only are we freed from sin, but we're free to love God and to know him and to obey him and to grow in holiness and godliness and loving him more. And that we do that in the context of community with our church. And that as we grow as Christians, you will eventually, over the course of time, this is a promise of God in the scriptures, grow to hate your sin more and more if you're really a believer. And yet, even though you will grow to hate the sin inside of you more and more, and as the more you grow, you put sin to death, you will start seeing the root cause of that sin more and more as you grow. And as you see that, you hate your sin all the more and yet you still sin. To where eventually, right, and this is why I love this, this letter that Paul writes because when you get to the end of Romans 7, there's just this moment of raw emotion from Paul where he just cries out and says, who will deliver me from this body of death. He's a professing follower of Christ, loves Jesus dearly, has planted churches all over the Roman world, has seen hundreds of people come to Christ, has seen life change in his own life, and yes, he sits there and writes this letter to the church at Rome, and he examines his own life. He's miserable looking at his own performance. He's distraught. He just says, who will deliver me from this body of death. He hates his sin. He hates his disobedience towards God. And then he gets to Romans 8, and his response to that hatred of sin is not to wallow in his own sin, not to resolve to do better, not to come up with a 10-step plan to be the best Christian the world has ever seen or to join every little com co committee or group that he could join in the church or to become a certain type of leader or to read enough books or know enough theology. His answer is this. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He runs back to the gospel. He runs back in the face of staring at his own sin 
and his own rebellion towards God, the place that he runs to is Jesus and what God has done for him in Christ. And he moves on in Romans 8 to say, there's no condemnation. Then he says, we're heirs with Christ because of what Jesus has done, meaning you and I are given a dad. God the Father is now our dad if we're in Christ, and we get to be partakers for eternity with him as our Father. And then he continues in Romans 8 to say, not only this, but God is for us and chose us as his own. That God in eternity past chose to love you. That's, that's the entire design of the gospel in the first place. That God the Father looked on his sinful, rebellious creation and instead chose to come up with a rescue plan to save us from our sin. That, that is what God did. And so Paul finishes up then, as we saw last week, by saying this. You and I can endure any level of suffering that we are now called to carry because it cannot possibly compare to the future glory that God is going to bestow upon us in Christ. That he basically says, there is nothing you can go through in this life that is even worthy of being compared to being a son of God. Nothing. There is no amount of suffering. And the reason all of this matters, the reason Paul has to share all this, right, is because here's the truth. Daily, if you are a Christian, you are in a battle in your own mind and in your own heart for your affections where they're running to, and what you believe. Because as much as we've probably been told this, right, you know, some of us, you know, grew up in environments where you prayed a prayer and you came down to the front and, and you were saved and like that was it, that was the day. Some of you guys got saved at camp, some of you guys got saved by having someone share the gospel with you, but all of us kind of, most of us, right, can look to a moment in time where like, yeah, that's the moment where I believed in Christ. And we think that, because that moment was the moment we were saved, that the gospel is a one-time event. That belief in Christ is a one-time event. But Paul is saying that consistently followers of Jesus must remind themselves of who they are in Christ. That that is the number one thing a Christian must do because there are two realities for you and I we will still sin and we will face suffering and trials. Those are the promised realities for any human being. And so the question then is, when faced with those two things, where will your affections turn? In the midst of sin, in the midst of suffering, where will your affections turn? And so if you're in the midst of struggling with sin and you're crying out the way that Paul does in Romans chapter 7, you can either excuse your sin or you can live in defeat because you're not sinless, which is where you think Paul is heading at the end of Romans 7. Or you can, like Paul, combat these issues by addressing what every professing follower of Jesus needs to know. You still sin, but God's love is bigger than that sin. That Jesus died for sins past, present, and future. 
And when Jesus said, while hanging on the cross, it is finished, he was not referring to his time on the cross, but he was referring to the penalty of sin that you must pay and that he chose to pay for you. Now, not only that, but not only do we battle with sin, but we also battle suffering. And it manifests itself in all sorts of ways, right? You know, Paul, Paul actually said last week, for those of you guys that were here, that suffering is meant to actually help us. And I know that's, that's you know, that's, that's hard to think through, right? You know, anybody here want to sign up for free suffering, right? No, no one in this room will do that. Th- think about it, guys. Here's how I know the human race doesn't like to suffer. The microwave exists, right? You ever thought about that? We're, we are so addicted to comfort and control that we need our food in 30 seconds instead of 30 minutes, okay? This is, it's just what we do. As human beings, we tend to run and hide from suffering. And Paul says that suffering is actually meant to help you and I cling to Jesus and make us more like him. If you look at verse 29, Paul says that the whole reason God saved you is so that you might be more like him. Let me read that to you. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Right, basically saying the whole reason you are a follower of God and still alive here on this earth is so that God might make you more like Jesus so that you will look like him and worship and honor him. And that that happens through suffering because suffering has a purpose. Now, it doesn't often feel that way, right? You and I are tempted to believe lies in the midst of our suffering. We're tempted to not trust in what Scripture says. We're tempted not to believe that God is really as good as the Word says He is. We're tempted to not trust in God's sufficiency in the midst of our suffering. Right? We'll believe things like, you know, if I'm, if I'm walking through cancer, or if I'm losing my job, or if my family's turned their back on me, God, God can't really love me. God, God's not really sovereign. Why would God allow this to happen? God's not really in control of all this. This this isn't worth it. Walking with God is not worth dealing with the the hate or or the anger that uh, that I'm dealing with from other people, those around me. God can't really have declared me as his son or daughter because a son or daughter would never be treated this way or, or be allowed to have this happen to them. And as we've seen, Paul's been trying to remind the church in Rome, stop. And he said this in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so in today's text, right, in what we're seeing at the end of Romans 8, Paul is going to ask five questions. And those five questions are meant to remind the Romans of one thing. God loves you. That's it. God loves you. Because here's the thing, guys. Many of us know that as an intellectual concept. Very few of us believe that regularly 24-7. No matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how strong a follower of Christ you are, 
very few of us believe that fully all the time. Therefore, we need to be reminded of it. So look at verse 31 with me. Right, we're going to work through these, these questions that Paul raises one at a time, verse by verse. Okay? Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So, question number one, right? He, he says, okay, look, you're, whether you're in suffering, whatever is going on, right? Here's what you need to understand. Question number one. If God is for you, who can be against you? And I, of all these questions here, I think this one probably has the most current application for us because culture in the United States at least is increasingly hostile to the church and to the gospel and increasingly hostile and, and here's what I mean by that because because I, I I think you as, as Americans we have a poor view of hostility like you and I are not going to be killed tomorrow for believing being followers of Christ there are brothers and sisters around the world who might lose their life tomorrow to be professing followers of Christ. But we are moving from a season where as Americans and Christians, the church in America is losing influence. And, and not just losing influence, but actually being uh, pushed away and told we don't want to have anything to do with you. And so in the midst of that and the struggle that I think the church is kind of walking through with that right now, the church is really struggling with that. How do, we, how do we balance being a faithful presence and witness to God, right, and caring most about his kingdom, and yet know that we do have a purpose and a place here in the U.S.? Right, there's a, there's a, a real tension there. And there's a tendency for us as a church to, to run and hide and look at this and say, wait, we can't overcome this. This is, this is too much. In the face of persecution and all that's going on, this is, this is too much. The influence of the church is shrinking. Is it worth it? Are we doing the right thing? Is living unto God and for his glory, is, is that worth surrendering maybe political influence or business influence or whatever it may be, educational influence? Is it worth, is it, worth it to surrender that influence for the cause of Christ? And Paul's answer is, listen, the God of the universe is for his church. Let that sink in for a second, okay? If you are a follower of Christ, you are a member of the church, the body of Christ. God is for his church. He calls it his bride. I'm married. I love my bride very much. Right? That's the type of language that God is using to describe you if you're a Christian. And Paul is saying here, if the God who created the heavens and the earth is for his children, then what do we have to worry about? Momentary suffering, affliction, and loss of influence are nothing compared to God and his power. Nothing. This is why Paul says back in verse 28 that all things are working to, to the good of those who love God. That everything you're going through is actually working out for your good, but it may, it may not be the good you want it defined as. 
right? God may be calling you to suffer for the sake of his glory and your good. God may be calling you to surrender influence for his glory and your good. God may be calling you to have less, not more, for your good and his glory. Meaning that anything you can walk through, cancer, financial issues, sin, all of it is meant to bring glory. And the real question is this, are, are we going to choose to trust that there is no one that can oppose God if God's made a decision on something? Can anyone really stand up to God? Can any human entity here on earth stand up to God, the creator of the universe? No. I mean, think, think back into the Old Testament of God's display of power multiple times, right? Our God is the God who rescued Noah from a worldwide natural disaster. Our God is the one who rescued Israel from the biggest world superpower of the time, Egypt, and not only delivered them as free men and women when they were once slaves to Israel, but actually had them plunder Israel for gold on their way out. And then in one last grand gesture, God parted the Red Sea to deliver them. Our God is the one who delivered Jonah, who in his own sin and wickedness tried to run from God, and yet God spared his life by keeping him alive in a fish in the middle of the ocean. Our God is the God who saved David time and time again from persecution from both family and friends. He's the God who has promised that he has delivered everyone who would believe upon him through repentance and faith from their sins. That's the God we're talking about here. He's a God who overcame natural disasters. He's a God who overcame world political superpowers. He's a God who overcame personal sin and wickedness and his own prophets. And he's the God who overcame the persecution of family and friends. I think that pretty much just sums about up about anything that we could possibly think of. And by the way, I only gave you a snapshot of the things God did in the Old Testament. Right? This is what we're talking about here. And this is what Paul is saying. That God is for you and I. He's not, God, believe it or not, and I know this is hard for some of you, God is not sitting up in heavens thinking about how he can try to manipulate and ruin everything around us. That's not how God works. Right? God wants to see the advance of the gospel take place within his church with his sons and daughters proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. God is for us. Who can be against us? Now, not only is God for us, but look at the second question he raises in verse 32. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So, the, 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 a common objection would be, okay, wait a minute, I, Kevin, I get you. God is powerful, and he can do whatever he wants. I, I, I get it, Okay. I'm tracking. If, if God is behind something, he's tracking. But how do I know he will act? How do I know he's for me? How do, how do I know that? 
right? I get it. God's all-powerful, you know. The government can't stop him. World superpowers can't stop him. You know, uh, cancer can't stop him. I, all these things, I get it. But how do I know he's for me? Paul says, you want proof that God will act on behalf of those that he promises he foreknew? That he chose in love and that he justified and glorified, to quote him at the, at, at the verses 28 and 29 and 30 of Romans chapter 8. He says, here's how you know. He gave his son, whom he dearly loved, so that you might be forgiven and redeemed. Now, some of you guys in here this morning are parents and some of you aren't. The parents in the room get this on a different level. They, they get what Paul's saying, right? When Paul says, God loved you so much that he gave his only son up for you, we get that, right? The parents are like, look, I mean, like, I have two sons, and I love them both dearly. They drive me absolutely crazy sometimes, but I love them dearly. I've got a six-year-old and a three-nager. It's very real, by the way. Whoever said terrible twos is lying. It's threes. That's, that's when it starts happening. Coincidentally, if any of you want to offer free babysitting, my wife and I are available anytime. But when, when Josiah, my youngest, right, was going through the worst of his medical issues, right, we, we didn't even know if he was going to make it. I mean, when, when your kid is having as many epileptic seizures as he was having, as young as he was having, it is not, is not good. And, and there were times in the hospital where I feared death for my kid. You know, I feared he, he may not ever walk. I, I don't know what's going to happen to him. And I would sit there and I would pray to God Lord, give it to me, please. <laughs> you know, he was like six days old. It's not like he had had some personality to win me over with. You know, he was just there. He existed. That was it. But he was my son. And I would cry out to God in prayer, Lord, deliver him from this. Give it to me if you have to, but please deliver him from this. Because I loved him so much. You know, I, I love a lot of you guys in this room. I've had the privilege of being your pastor for a, a long time. And, and there's a lot of things I would do for you. I would not give the life of my kid for you. There's like brutal honesty moment here for a second, right? Like as much as I love you, I would not, if, you, if someone said, hey, uh, you know, I'm gonna pick JR because I've known JR since third grade so I know he can handle this. JR or Josiah, sorry bro, you're dead. <laughs> love you, dude. But I'm picking Josiah. And yet, God, in his mercy and love towards you, gave the life of his only son so that you might be forgiven. The depth of God the Father's love for you is immeasurable. God's love is not just some concept or intellectual idea. It is a felt love that can be trusted because God has given up so much to secure that salvation for you. He is trustworthy 
and he will act. And that is what Paul is reminding us of here. That God is for us. Who can be against us? And the God who is for you is the God that demonstrated his love for you and that he gave his only son so you might be reconciled to him. That's the type of power we're talking about here. Now, even then, right, because some of you are like, I'm with you, Kevin. I, I believe all that. I get it. I get God's love is that immense. I love it. And yet there are still, there still is in us a propensity to, to understand and grasp that level of love and that level of grace that God might show his people and then to step back and look at your own sin and still struggle to believe that God is for you to still struggle to believe in the, the promise of future glory and eternity with him. And so Paul raises another question that he's going to answer, right? Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God as God's elect? It is God who justifies. Right? It, you may be sitting there saying, well, Kevin, you, you don't know how much I've struggled with this particular sin. You don't understand how wretched I am. I am guilty of horrible things. And to the outside world, you may look like the lowliest of sinners. Paul actually calls himself that at one point, by the way. The worst of all sin. He calls himself the chief of sinners. But there is a propensity for us to look at our sin and say, you don't understand how, how jacked up I am, how messed up I am. You don't understand how wicked I can be. And internally, you hate yourself because you feel guilty and you condemn yourself. And externally, your sin may affect others and you may be hated by others. And they're declaring you guilty. Some of you guys may or may not be familiar with this story, but there was a, a man a couple decades ago by the name of Jeffrey Dahmer who is known as probably, if, if not the most, one of the most prolific serial killers in the history of the United States. I was in elementary school when he was arrested, and I remember my mom turning off the television uh, when the stories about him would come on because of how brutal it was, the things that he did. Right? He, would, he would decapitate people. Uh, he was accused of cannibalism. He ended up being uh, charged and convicted of 16 different murders. And some of them, uh, some of the, the stories and the accounts of the things they did were some of the, the most brutal things you could possibly imagine. And while he was in prison, a Church of Christ pastor by the name of Roy Ratcliffe started meeting with him and ended up leading uh, Jeffrey Dahmer to Christ. Baptized him in the uh, whirlpool at the prison that he went to, which I was baptized in a whirlpool as well, so I have that in common with him, I guess. Uh, not a prison. No. And so, Roy Ratcliffe shares in this, this story about how he, he saw this man come to Christ that after Jeffrey Dahmer um, came to faith, the story came out in the news, and the media went nuts. I mean, the media just went absolutely crazy. Like, how in the world could you say this guy's going to heaven? This is insane. And Roy Ratcliffe even said when he was being interviewed one time that a member of his own congregation told him, if Jeffrey Dahmer is going to heaven, then I don't want to be there. Yet if we understand the radical nature of God's mercy towards us, we will see him. 
Because God's grace and mercy has no limits to who he will forgive, to those who believe upon him. No matter what accusation someone throws at you, or what someone says of you, or even what you believe about yourself, if you are in Christ, here's what you need to know. God has declared you forgiven and justified, meaning in the cosmic courtroom, you are not guilty. And there is no double jeopardy. The trial has done. Christ paid the penalty. There's nothing on earth that has more authority than God himself. And God's declaration for those who are in Christ is you are not guilty. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. That level of grace scares me. And here's why. If I preach that kind of grace, I can't manipulate you. I can't. Right? Being a pastor that preaches the law and tells you that you need to follow and do things to be a good Christian and do all these different things is a lot easier than preaching that level of grace and mercy. But guess what? That's what the Bible tells us is there. Right, following God is not some manipulation game. It's God's felt love for you poured out in Christ. And whom God has justified, no one can declare guilty. If you are a follower of Christ here this morning, that is true of you. You are in him and you are not guilty. Instead, you're the, all, all the things Paul talked about earlier in the book of Romans. You're, you're sons, you're daughters, you're heirs with Christ. You have a, a father in heaven. You will receive a, a, a heavenly inheritance. Like, so many great things. It's one of those things about being a follower of Jesus where I'm like, how in the world can we look at my life and the reality of how messed up I am and that's the outcome? Eternal glory with the creator of the universe. How, how is that the reality? Unbelievable. You are not guilty in him. Now, question four. Not only can someone declare you, not only can someone not declare you guilty, including yourself, but they can't condemn you to hell either. It's not the job of anyone or any person other than God to judge and condemn somebody. Look at verse 34 with me. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who can condemn after what Christ did is basically what Paul's saying. He died, he rose, and he intercedes for you now. If you ever feel unsupported or unloved in your walk with the Lord, that people are saying that you're not really a Christian, or you're not doing the Christian thing, or you're not doing what you're supposed to do, or maybe you even believe that about yourself, remind yourself of this. God has declared you as his, and what he saves, he always saves. And what God has saved, Jesus is continuously interceding for. And there is no condemnation. 
that God the, God the Father, as he stands there in the throne room of heaven, the Son sits at his right hand saying, Kevin, he's, he's, he's ours. He's ours. I died for him. Jackie, that's my wife, by the way. Jackie, I died for her. If you're in Christ, he is interceding on your behalf daily. And there will be times when you're tempted to listen to, to the noise around you, hate or truth or whatever it may be. Don't wallow in your sin. Remind yourself of who your God is and what he has done for you. One of the things, if you've been here long enough, you've heard me say this before. My job as a pastor is to remind you consistently that you have spiritual amnesia and that the scripture is there to remind you of what God has done for you. Because you will forget. Right? Anybody ever wonder why Paul repeats himself like 30 times in like the course of like six sentences? You want to know why? Because he knows you're going to forget. And I tell you guys this all the time. What is the language that God uses to describe the church? What animal does he use to describe us? Sheep. Anybody in here a shepherd? Yeah, no one. All right. I, I spent a little time around sheep. They are really stupid. Like the dumbest of animals out there. <laughs> so first of all, just let that sink in for a second. God's calling you dumb. <laughs> Okay, and then he's saying, I love you anyway, right? Right, that the, that the language God uses to describe us is that of saying, you consistently forget what I've done for you. I'm going to remind you anyway. You consistently forget the depth of my love for you. I'm going to remind you anyway. And all of this culminates in verse 35 where he says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's ultimately, that's ultimately the, the big question that we're all asking daily, right? Is there anything that I could do that could make God stop loving me? Anything. Anything at all. Is there anything I could do that could make, push God, that could push God away? Is there anything that I could, that could do to unearn his love? Is there anything I could do to, to make God say, nope, change my mind, don't love Kevin anymore? And Paul's answer is no. No, look at, look at what he says. Think, think, think about how crazy this is. Like I can think of all sorts of things that could make me possibly unlove somebody. Many of them I've done. And yet look at all these things that Paul lists here at the end of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, right, adversity in life. Any adversity in life, because is there any adversity in life at all that could separate God's love for you? Or distress, right, that word distress is talking about a narrow, difficult situation that you can't get out of. Or persecution, talking about suffering at the hands of others, rightly or wrongly. Or famine, nothing to eat or a lack of your needs being met. 
We're talking about pretty much, we're, we're already hitting pretty much anything you could possibly walk through at this point, but he keeps going, right? All right, because uh, uh, tribulation, any adversity, okay, that's pretty broad, distress, narrow, difficult situation, that covers adversity, but okay, that sounds like the same thing to me, but we're, we're still walking there, right? Uh, persecution, other people uh, trying to uh, make me suffer, uh, we've got famine, nothing to eat, look what he says next, next uh, nakedness, and he's not just talking about a lack of clothing there, but he's talking about being fully known by others. You know, the, the, the parts of you that you don't want anybody else to know. Could being fully known at the heart level make God stop loving you? That's what Paul's asking here. He keeps going. Or danger. Your actual physical safety. <laughs> could, could that separate God's love from you? Or how about this one? Sword. Death. Death itself. Could death itself separate you from the love of Christ? And then, and then Paul says this. He quotes Psalm 44, 2 and verse 36. He says, As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Why, the reason that Paul quotes that is the psalmist in, in Psalm 44 is basically talking about the persecution of Israel and how they feel like, as followers of God, this is their life. That all day long, they're like sheep being led to the slaughter. And so Paul says, okay, this is, uh, this is the church. These are followers of Christ. This is us. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, uh, death. We, we feel like all the day long we are being led to the slaughter. Does God really love us in the face of scrutiny and persecution? Can any of these things separate us from him? And look at what Paul says. It's beautiful. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The promises of God are that we are His. And because we are His, He has given us the promised Holy Spirit. And because we've been given the Holy Spirit, you can rest in knowing that for eternity, you are his. Because Jesus conquered all things, he overcomes for us. Nothing can take that away. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Do you understand the magnitude of that? Paul says that death can't separate you from the love of God. That life can't separate you from the love of God. That angels can't separate you from the love of God. That any human ruler can't separate you from the love of God. That nothing present or to come can separate you from the love of God. That, that powers can't separate you from the, from the love of God. That height or depth, and he's referring to the entire created universe when he uses that language there, cannot separate you from the love of God. So if Star Wars becomes real and you and I start time traveling across the galaxies light years away or whatever else is going on, not even that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. None of it can separate you because of what God has chosen to do for you. Church, hear me on this. 
God chose to love you. That's what it means by saying he foreknew you. And because he chose to love you, you can't undo that. If you, lo, love is a choice, right? Anybody, anybody love that famous wedding passage in 1 Corinthians, right? I just love when I go to a wedding where they read that passage. I'm like, this is about the church, not marriage. Sorry. By the way, if you, you guys are getting married right now and I'm doing your wedding, please don't pick that as your verse. Just please don't. I mean, we'll do it. We'll go for it. But I'm probably going to talk about the church and not your wedding. So just be, just be ready, <laughs> right? But if, that, if that's the reality, everything that Paul says there, think about that. Love is patient. Either you choose to be patient or you don't. Love is kind. Either you choose to be kind or you don't. Love does not boast. Either you choose to boast or you don't. What is Paul telling the church of Corinth there? Godly love is a choice, not an emotion. That true godly love is choosing to love someone despite their failings and and flaws. And guess what? The God of the universe has promised that he has chosen to love you if you are in Christ. And you can't undo that. You can't make someone else choose to stop loving you. Like, like it's one of the crazy things about being a parent. I, I will love my kids no matter what. It may not look like they want it to look, but I will love my kids no matter what. And there is nothing they can do to change that. And guess what? It's my choice, not theirs. I choose to love them. I choose to support them. I choose to bear with them. It's a little glimpse of the magnitude of God's love for us. He chooses to love you. I want to I leave you with this quote from Tim Keller. The almighty God of the universe has purposed to make us perfectly holy and gloriously happy. And these two things are inseparably linked. And literally nothing can thwart God's purpose for us. That is your God. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, that is your God. He loves you far more than you could ever imagine, and he's far greater and bigger than any sin, trial, or persecution you could ever face. So here's what I want us to do, okay? Every week we take communion here, right? And and what I invite you guys to do is during that time we'll come up we'll play a little music and before you come up and take communion I would just invite you if you are a follower of Christ to sit there and just pray and thank God that he chooses to love you because you have done nothing to warrant that level of mercy and grace and yet he chose to anyway and then when you come up here and you take communion right Right? One of the things I used to do as a kid is I thought it was like one of those times where I had to act really penitent and like really sad and sorrowful over my sin. Guess what? Communion's an act of worship, right? You're, you walk up here and you take the bread and you take the juice and you glorify and worship God because he gave his flesh and blood so you might be forgiven. And that's not something to be solemn about, it's something to celebrate. So I would invite you to confess any sin, 
repent of it, and then come up here and take communion, worshiping God for what he has done for you in Christ. If you are not a follower of Jesus here this morning, right, first of all, I'm glad you're here. Second of all, you're here for a reason. You, you may be here because you think your friend drug you here, or your girlfriend, or your boyfriend, or mom, or dad, or whoever it may be, right? Right, I promise you this, nothing is random, right? My own story, how God rescued me, culminated with three major changes in two, in two different university transfers to get me to the place where God got me to, where someone shared the gospel with me. That, that's how crazy it is. Right, the story of Jonah, just so you know, when God wants to save somebody, he does crazy things. Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh to tell the Ninevites to repent and turn to God, and, and Jonah tried to go the opposite direction and got on a boat. They threw him off the boat, a fish swallowed him, and the fish spit him back up on land near Nineveh so that he would go to Nineveh. That's how God operates, right? It's not an accident you're here this morning. God loves you. He loves you so much that he demonstrated that by sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins. And that if you believe that Christ did that and trust him as your Lord and Savior through repentance and faith, you will be saved and spend eternity with him as a son or a daughter of God. I would invite you to respond and accept Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that it is. I, Lord, I need this. Lord, I know there's men and women in this room this morning that need this as well. We, we wear ourselves down as, a, as, a, as, a, as men and women. We, we strive to do so much. We try to pack more and more into our days. We try to be the right person, the right mom, the right dad, the right neighbor, the right boss, the right worker, the right employee, whatever, <laughs> the right student, the right teacher. Whatever, whatever you want to list, we just strive and strive and strive, and we never meet the standards that we even set for ourselves, much less the standards you set in your word. And yet your word promises us that God sees us in our suffering, in our sin, in our trials, and in our persecution, in our rebellion. And Lord, you sent your son to rescue us. And we never tire of singing praises to Jesus. May we never tire of glorifying you. Lord, I've been accused of many things over the course of my life. Some of them I'm ashamed of. But Lord, help me to never be ashamed of being known as somebody who loves Jesus a lot. <laughs> Lord, may we as a church be known as a church that loves Jesus and loves others because we love Jesus. Thank you for your, the, the word. Lord, thank you for the encouragement that it is to us. May we continue to rest in knowing that there is nothing that can separate us from your love towards us in Christ. Help us to know that not just intellectually, but at a felt heart level so that we might worship you. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.